speaking with Dr. Uh, Alberto Pugliesi. He is a very um, well-known scientist in the field of type 1 diabetes. And he has joined the City of Hope as the Samuel Rabar Chair in Diabetes and Drug Discovery, the Chair of the Department of Diabetes Immunology, and the Director of the Wanak Family Project for Type 1 Diabetes within the Arthur Riggs Diabetes and Metabolism Research Institute. He's coming to the City of Hope by way of the Diabetes Research Institute, the DRI at the University of Miami, where he served as the J. Enlow and Eugenia J. Dodson Chair in Diabetes Research, and he was a tenured professor of medicine in the Division of Diabetes Endocrinology and Metabolism, um, and a professor of microbiology and immunology. Not sure how he had time to do all this, but he did it very well. And he also finally, he also served as Deputy Director for Immune Tolerance at the DRI, Leonard Miller School of Medicine, the University of Miami. Um, you know, he, he um, in his sort of bio and uh, letter to the community, you know, he really, um, you know, let people know he's excited by the opportunity to work together on a shared vision for world-class type 1 diabetes uh, program with this strong translational goals and to advance type 1 diabetes research through strategic and scientific innovation with a really strong emphasis, which we love to hear, on collaboration toward a cure. So he's not really afraid to say the word cure here, which we like to hear. Um, and it's not, you know, he's not saying that lightly. Um, I don't think he, uh, I think he understands truly what that means. He's really de dedicated his life to advancing type 1 diabetes research through scientific excellence, open collaboration, and training of new investigators, which is really where the heart of it is. Um, inviting the best and the brightest into the field and training them and keeping them, you know, interested um, in pursuing this very difficult field is a big job. So he's um, he's really spent his illustrious 35-year career studying type 1 diabetes from the preclinical period to clinical diagnosis and afterwards. And it's really, his work has led to a greater understanding of genetic and cellular mechanisms that regulate immune, uh, immunological self-tolerance, specifically molecules targeted in diabetes. So, um, and when we talk about, you know, City of Hope, just as a little blurb about City of Hope, it's located here in the outskirts of Los Angeles in Duarte. Um, it has a global reputation as a leader in diabetes research from the earliest days, basically, when technology developed at the organization uh, helped create the world's first synthetic insulin. And that was, you know, something that uh, Dr. Arthur Riggs, who recently passed away, was heavily involved in. So City of Hope, you know, scientists and physicians within this, this, you know, Arthur Riggs Diabetes and Metabolic Research Institute, or the ARDMRI, uh, really are inspired by that legacy. They remain dedicated to advancing the treatment of the disease, and they really have a laser focus on eventually finding a cure. So uh, this uh, Diabetes Meta um, Metabolism Research Institute was established in 2014, it integrates basic translational and clinical research with innovative care and comprehensive education. And really significant work has led to some super exciting developments in cell transplantation. There's a lot of new shining stars uh, working there currently, as well as some people with a deep experience in the field. And um, there's also a very interesting um, you know, uh, synergy there with the fact that there's a cancer research uh, facility and center also at City of Hope. And um, there's been great strides that have been made in making connection between diabetes and cancer. And in 2020, City of Hope founded the Department of Diabetes and Cancer Metabolism. That's the very first of its kind in the U.S. And that de department focuses on diabetes and cancer as constellation of disease. 
Uh, finally, just a shout out to the Wanick Family Project for Type 1 Diabetes. Um, you know, uh, one thing that has been, this family <clears throat> has really been supportive of diabetes research and, um, you know, are, are sort of uh, really backing many of these great advances. So I just wanted to, you know, say thank you again for joining us, Dr. Pugliese. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, where do you think the most room for growth in T1D or type 1 diabetes research exists right now? So first of all, thank you for the introduction and um, giving me the opportunity to meet with you today and have a chat. Um, so uh, I think there are so many technological advances and so much potential for discovery that is mind-blowing. You mentioned that I've been in this field a long time, and in fact, it's been about 35 years. And when I started, um, many of the things that we now take for granted and we know as knowledge about the disease were completely unknown. Mm. Think If you think about genes, right, we knew barely that the HLA region was associated with type 1 diabetes. We only knew about a couple of autoantigens. Now we have five, six more than that, right? And 80 genes and so forth. So just to give a couple of examples, uh, we didn't have any assays to measure certain responses, now we can detect all kinds of things. So there has been so much progress that is really unbelievable. Um, I think what we need to do, I think that's where, I guess, genetically speaking, the greatest opportunity for growth and expansion is to take these discoveries to the patients now, right? And translate those into meaningful advances to their everyday life and ideally to a cure. And you mentioned before, a cure is a very complex word, right? And we know that type 1 diabetes really is a chronic disease. It's a multifactorial disease. There are many components in the pathogenesis of the disease. So it, it is not common that the complex disease of chronic nature actually can be cured in a way, in a very simple way. Right. So many chronic diseases that we have may require chronic treatment, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, that is not to say that we could not actually do things that are quite transformative. Right. But it is important to understand that essentially we have two things that we need to address. Right. Beta cell dysfunction and loss eventually as disease progresses and the immune system and other factors that contribute to the demise of the beta cells. So if we can manage those two things and we can control them, um, then of course we can reach a cure. Now to do that, one can do this in a way that, for example, if you have autoimmunity, can you actually restore self-tolerance? If you can do that by somehow re-educating the immune system or selectively targeting the cells that are the culprit, for that and really make them go away, then you may have really obtained a cure. And I'm not saying that that's impossible, okay? But it has been harder than, than doing other things. If you can make new beta cells, and now we are, right? Not me, but other people in the field have been very successful, whether it's stem cell-derived beta cells or even making new beta cells out of human islet cells. Um, you know, the work of Andy Stewart, for example, and Adolfo Garcia-Ocan, who, by the way, is joining City of Hope. Um, so nice. these, these are all tremendous advances that now they're going to advance even further as they are tested more and more in clinical trials. And hopefully they will become the therapies of the near future. Um, we, know, we also, I think, need to consider that there have been uh, a lot of progress in prevention 
and screening in the general population. This is a very important frontier and is the yes. new frontier. We could not have dreamt uh, years ago that we could go and screen the general population. It was completely out of question. Now we are. Uh, so, and now we have the first drug ever approved for treating island autoimmunity in type one diabetes, which is teplizumab. And that you know took a long time to get to this point. It From took the about 35 years also to get exactly. to FDA exactly. approval. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So starting with work in the mice in the mid 80s by Jeff Bluston, Kevin Harold, and they were consistent and worked at it. And, you know, a lot of collaboration from other people and clinical trials. And many, many years later, finally, this is approved. And this can actually really provide a big push towards primary prevention or, or, or secondary prevention in this case, more likely. But even towards primary prevention, because then you're going to go and screen even the general population, and that's where you can implement primary prevention. So these are all areas where there can be tremendous growth. Yeah, it does appear, as I think I talked to you a little bit off camera, that you know, as you implement these um, testing strategies for the general population, you know, you can really illustrate the prodrome a lot better, and in doing so, identify, you know. I guess, you know, I don't know if we want to call them endotypes, but people are calling them endotypes. Who's, you know, who's best suited for which clinical trials and who's best suited for which drug approach. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, in there's a lot of opportunity there and there's a lot of um, exciting uh, work to be done, especially for, you know, young trainees, which is sort of leads me to my next question for you is why is City of Hope such an amazing place for researchers, um, but also early career scientists um, and trainees to, who are interested in studying type 1 diabetes? All right. So uh, a disclaimer is that I have been virtually at City of Hope for less than th about 30 days. So I joined on October 17th, and I'm actually still in Miami relocating physically next week. So I had limited exposure to some aspects of it. But um, I know a couple of things that I, that I can share. Um, one is that actually um, the institution provides really strong support to investigators, especially young investigators, uh, which is in terms of salary support and help towards uh, progressing in their career and become independently funded. So there is um, a bit less pressure than there might be in academia, in more conventional academic institutions, uh, in order to become independent uh, in a shorter time. Usually there is much more pressure in academia. That doesn't mean that, you know, they do this because they, they're more relaxed in, certain, in the sense that they don't strive for excellence. No, they understand that this is actually a process and people need time and support to be successful. So I think that that recognition uh, is very important. I think that the mean age uh, for the first R01 grant for many investigators now has, has been in the mid 40s. Uh, so think about that. Um, so how challenging it is for people to become really independent. Yeah. And then they have, I've seen already from interactions with my colleagues, how much emphasis they put, number one, on one-on-one -on -one training and encouragement and guidance uh, towards advancing their projects, making progress, obtaining their own grants, guiding them how to write them, how to prepare, et cetera. And then they have formal training programs that are all very helpful. I know that they they have um, 
in partnership with um, uh, UCLA. They have an endocrine fellowship program. So that, that's a very good thing for those who are also MDs as well as PhDs. Um, they have training in bioscience management. Uh, this is in collaboration with the Keck Graduate Institute in Claremont, California. They have clinical investigation training. Uh, that's very important for those that have uh, more translational um, 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 interests. Um, they have professional development series. Uh, so where you have seminars from people that really talk about how do you develop your career? How do you uh, advance in, in, in your independence, in your funding, et cetera? And um, how do you uh, um, um, uh, communicate um, to the greater audience your science, because we all know that in order to be successful in science, not only you have to be a great scientist, you also have to be an excellent communicator. Communication skills are absolutely essential. If you can't communicate, nobody's going to listen to you and you can't get attention. So you really need to learn how to communicate and make sure that even a person that is not a scientist can really understand where you're coming from and what you're trying to do. Um, they um, And they also have... Um, um, other programs, including uh, seminar series, which are internal uh, from uh, um, various investigators at, at City of Hope. But also we have been discussing, actually we'll discuss it um, um, in the next faculty meeting, a suggestion that I made uh, to um, the director of the uh, Diabetes Institute. Perhaps you could have a, a, a seminar series um, that is for external presenters, but also it's open to the public so that it could be an hybrid virtual and in-person for those local, but it could attract participants, not just presenters from the outside, uh, which I think would drive more discussion, more interaction with minds from other places. And ideally I would think about that as a vehicle to stimulate interaction and collaboration. Yeah, that's all, you know, great news to be honest. Um... I know that uh, Dr. Linda DiMelio from um, IU is very interested in the DiabDocs program, the MD, uh, sort of really encouraging MD PhDs to get involved in diabetes research. And um, there is an MD PhD program at City of Hope. You know, there's there's spots there. Mm -hmm. I would also, um, you know, so that uh, that's some kind of avenue to consider. Um, that uh, MD-PhDs could participate in, in research at City of Hope as well. But I'd also like to just comment um, just from my own interaction with uh, scientists at City of Hope. We did a whole Riggs-Levine uh, memorial, um, you know, kind of uh, interview with different scientists there. We, I've spoken to several of them, including Deb Thurman, who the, was the interim director. And uh, there's just a, there's a really a, quite a warmth there very nice feeling of collaboration and um i don't even know if i want to say kindness you know uh, among the researchers there uh they seem to be very um supportive of one another and so that's another wonderful selling point i guess about city of hope if you're a trainee thinking about it um thinking about you know learning more um I, you know, so that leads me to this other idea or question. What are, are there currently positions open for PIs, trainees interested in T1D right now? What's the uh, department look like? Well, so my department just started, right? So I actually, uh, early next year, I'm going to be posting some positions. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, there are um, uh, a few people that are actually coming with me from Miami. One is attending, Julia is attending 
the the conference today and uh, oh, she's fantastic and and doing some exciting work yes and, she is um, yes and um and 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 again i'm i'm going to be looking for faculty members as well as uh postdocs and and students and 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 so forth so um for sure, I'm going to have to build a department, so I'm going to have to have positions open. And over time, you know, there is always an opening, you know, uh, on and off, depending on when uh, positions become available. But in general, I think um, the institution is um, um, always evolving, right? And and people coming and going, and yeah. uh, but there is always opportunities. Uh, yeah, that well, that's that's wonderful news. And for anyone who's listening, I would certainly encourage you to reach out for more information. Um, how does this strong? We talked we touched on this earlier that City of Hope has a very strong oncology department. But how does that strong oncology department at City of Hope make this a really interesting place to study type one diabetes? Well, so there are many interesting um, facets of human biology that are relevant uh, to both cancer and um, diabetes, right? And, and so having people that operate on both sides uh, creates a situation where um, you can easily find someone to talk to that has a different perspective, but that perspective can actually be synergistic. There are so many uh, examples of crosstalk uh, between diabetes and cancer. And very often there are even target pathways or molecules that we want to modulate therapeutically and they're the same. Uh, sometimes we try to do the opposite, right? We may want to suppress something in cancer and stimulate it in the immunity and vice versa. But that brings a lot of similarity and a lot of even advantages in terms of saying, if we are, for example, thinking about developing a new drug to interfere with that pathway, maybe we could do it both ways, right? So maybe we could think about synergy and say, why don't we try to do it in a way that on one hand, we have a molecule that stimulate and the other one that uh, inhibits, right? And we cover both diseases. And then you have the ability to actually do all kinds of testing and development of those drugs relevant to both conditions. And one of the things that CDLO has is really actually maybe a unique ability to design and create new drugs uh, and, and advance those through the necessary safety, toxicity, preclinical testing uh, much more rapidly than, than conventionally may be possible in many other institutions. So they actually have a very good setup. In a way, again, I've been in academia all of my life. And so for me to think about, okay, I'm joining an institution, it's not a university, and um, it's a little bit different. And so I'm adapting to that. But what I realized that they operate in a slightly different way and they have a more structured organization that actually is dedicated to facilitate new therapies, the design and discovery and advancement of new therapies. I think that that's a little bit unique. Yeah, I do think it is unique. Um, it's like a hybrid in a sense. Mm -hmm. and, it's a little bit of an hybrid. I mean, uh, just a shout out to Mike Caligiri. He's the president of the City of Hope National uh, Medical Center. And um, I knew him when he was a fellow at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, a Harvard affiliate. And then he was at... Um, you know, Ohio State University for uh, quite a while. Um, but he's, he's very interesting. You know, he's got some really interesting uh, research 
background and projects, very interested in NK cells and Epstein-Barr virus involvement in tumor genesis, uh, along with, you know, uh, lymphoma, leukemia, and cancer. So it, it is interesting that he brings that, uh, oops, I'm going to let someone in. Um, he brings that to bear as well. Um, and as you said, you know, there's a lot of seep scope going on at City of Hope, and that uh, in both disciplines can be instructive, I think. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And he's a great guy, but I mean, I'm very excited to have you sort of both at the helms of these two sort of uh, driving driving forward uh, these two research uh, efforts. Um, what Here's sort of a, a big question. What mm -hmm. is your vision for T1D research at City of Hope? Do you have a five-year plan? Now, you're only 30 days on the, yeah. on the clock here, so that's a pretty a big ask, and I know it is, but, you know, just sort of a, maybe just a general. Sure. Uh, Sketch. So, so I, I, so number one, I have um, a bunch of projects that I've been working on, um, you know, while I was in Miami that are going to continue. And one of them is hopefully a clinical trial that we hope to get started next year. Right now, we have a grant application pending with the NIH that we hope to get. And so um, that would be um, a major uh, um, step forward in terms of having a new trial to test the combination therapy in type 1 diabetes. Um, I, I you know, wanted to um, uh, mention that um, this th that particular trial is a multi-center trial and will involve collaboration with many, many other institutions. And, and that I say that because that's part of my vision to actually promote collaboration. This is what I've been doing for a long time. Um, if you think about my involvement with TrialNet or my involvement with the network for the pancreatic organ donor, donor with diabetes, uh, what I spend a lot of my time on is making sure that we attract people to the fold and um, we support them in doing research, innovative research, uh, and we also, facilitate interactions and collaborations. So I've been creating working groups and putting people together um, and, and, and create really teams that didn't exist before. And what I've seen is given the opportunity, uh, people will share very freely. And what I'm talking about is data, reagents, samples, anything, their knowledge, their experience, and, and that is done, it's possible to do when they share a common goal and they feel that they are empowered to contribute, that they could do more, that they were working in isolation. And at the end of the day, everybody learns more. And, and then when we have discussions about the progress of the project and the science, you'll be amazed. These, these meetings sometimes, they're, going, they're all virtual most of the times, and they go on for three hours. And... There's no way of stopping them because they're they're having a blast. Uh, so it's not like oh wow we have to be here for two hours. No, they keep going because they're they're really enjoying the interaction and discussing science. And so this is I think very very important. At the end of the day, I started as a, a physician, and the reason why I ended up doing research is because when I was a young physician and I was taking care of kids newly diagnosed with type one diabetes. And there wasn't that much that I can do for them and even worse for their brothers and sisters. Because sometimes after a child was diagnosed, six months later, a year later or so forth, the sister or brother, which I by then knew and they were my little friends, 
they came down with diabetes as well. And it was extremely frustrating that all I could do is say, okay, take more or less insulin. And I could not make that go away. I reasoned in my head, I said, wait a minute, a doctor is supposed to cure people. I'm not curing anybody. Maybe I can do something better than this. So that's what motivated me to go into research. And that's what I've been doing ever since. But my drive has not been necessarily a law for science. Of course, I love science, the whole process, hypothesis, testing, the mechanism, that's all beautiful, but it's not my main driver. My main driver is get to the goal of improving the lives of people with type 1 diabetes, hopefully reach a cure. I know for a fact that I, I don't think I can do it for sure, not alone. Um, I think that the best thing I can do is bring people together and trying to do together the best we can. To advance towards yeah. the cure. I, I totally ascribe to I, yeah, I totally ascribe to that idea. And I would just make the, you know, this was sort of like the beginning of this idea of the sugar science is to create a platform where scientists could speak together and listen and and share their work and right. perhaps spark new ideas. And I think if we look at even the pandemic, yes, it was a terrible thing. But there was there was one bright spot that I thought about is that, you know because scientists kind of like, I don't know, maybe put their guards down or weren't as competitive and really worked together to, to, to get some kind of solution to COVID, they did accelerate the work. And that's sort of proof of concept, like that it actually can be done. So I think that, you know, um, there is also, there's a little bit of a, um, I guess the word on the street is kind of like, oh, well, you know, type one diabetes, it's all set. They have their pump. They have, you know, the man was cured on the front of the New York Times. And yes, that was fantastic. Um, but it, it really is a very grueling day-to-day -day disease. Um, I know my daughter has it and it's, um, and I know many others who are, have it or many of my interns have it. Um, and uh, it, it is, it is a really, 24 7 365 disease and it's it takes all your attention of, for a lot of the time and if 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 a mistake is made it can be deadly so um to your point that you know it really takes a village of scientists to really accelerate the work to get to a cure i think things are really moving that way um and um i so appreciate you know all that you're bringing to bear in this, you know, sort of the bright spot of City of Hope in a really unique place where um, you can build a team under your vision that's really going to do some incredible work. I wanted to open it up now to questions from any of our attendees. If you want to drop something in the chat or if you want to raise your hand and speak, uh, ask to unmute. I'd love to have someone, um, you know, ask a question for Dr. Pugliese. Don't be shy. Don't, don't, don't type. Just ask. Just ask. Okay, Emra. Yes. Hi, hi, Monica. Hi, Dr. Puyese. So I have been following Dr. Puyese's works for years now. So your work from genetics to viruses, from clinic to your research has been so has been so impressive. So a great pleasure to meet you. Thank so you. Monica just mentioned about the COVID nineteen pandemic. And I think you might have seen, you might have some data in also City of Hope, but there are some papers showing that people infected with COVID-19 then developing type 1 diabetes. But type 1 is a, according to the dogma or our knowledge, is a slowly 
developing disease, we first see autoantibodies, then after some years, the, we, lost, we lose all these beta cells. Do you think that this COVID-19 related diagnosis, is it just, they just diagnose these patients and they think that it's related to COVID or do you really think that there's something between COVID-19 um, and type one diabetes onset? So I, I think that the reality is that time will tell because um, the pandemic, right, has been evolving. When it started, a lot of people were dying, right? And um, and it was a very serious disease. We did not know how to treat it. We did not have vaccines, right? So now, as Monica was saying, the collaboration and the will <coughs> to um, make this go away, right, drove an amazing rate of progress that in less than a year, right, maybe eight or nine months, we had vaccines that had been approved <clears throat> for uh, wide administration in the population. That's never happened that, that as far as I can tell before, right? So that tells you what science is capable of. Now, however, this also has an impact on the virus, right? And how, and the virus evolves, right? And presumably is going to become less and less pathogenic, right? And as he adapts to humans and and it's gonna be part of us. This is gonna be like another flu, right? By the way, today I have COVID. First time that I know I have it. So um, so if I sneeze every once in a while, that's why. Uh, but so, but there have been a number of reports indicating a possible connection, but I suspect that those are anecdotal and often they have not been completely you know, characterized. Uh, there had been studies, I've been involved in some of these studies that look at the pancreas uh, in terms of expression of receptors for uh, the virus. You know, there are discordant opinions. Some people say that it's possible that beta cells get infected. Uh, some people say, well, the receptor is not there. How is that possible? Uh, access to the pancreas from um, patients that passed away with COVID has been very limited. And then, um, my suspicion is that if you pass away from COVID, right, it's probably going to be pretty fast. And maybe the virus did not have time to get to the pancreas. So I think about it more as possibly a chronic type of situation where maybe the virus could be persistently there and little by little then increase the risk of type 1 diabetes, more or less like we think it's happening with uh, enteroviruses, right? It may not be that different from that. So it could be that in the future, COVID becomes one of the viruses that is important in, in type 1 diabetes. And not all patients are going to have it. Some patients are going to have enteroviruses. Other patients may have rotaviruses or herpetoviruses. There have been a number of studies that have suggested links to any of those infections. So COVID could just become one of those. But I think we need to have proper assessment of a large number of individuals who have, especially those that are in uh, clinical cohorts right now, for example, uh, like TrialNet uh, or um, early life uh, natural history studies where uh, individuals with uh, genetic predisposition and enrolled, they're followed over time. If they do COVID testing periodically, right, they can probably identify a relationship as they have done, for example, with enterovirus in the TEDDY study. So it's a matter of being able to do it and we, we can 
get answers because the setup is there. And actually, um, if they continue to collect samples, then they'll be able to do it. Or if they can, if if they have samples from that period of time, um, they they should be able to do it. But again, it changes, right? So I think we would need to have some studies that are ongoing because they need to reflect what is the situation today, not necessarily two years ago, prior to vaccination. Sorry for yeah. the. No, answer. that's great. It's a real opportunity that you sort of, you yeah, know, illustrate. That's an opportunity to study, right? Yes. Um, I wanted to Slavica, um, yes. to over. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, hi, Dr. Pulise, uh, Slavica Tujarova from UCLA. Um, my question is a little bit philosophical. You okay. mentioned technologies uh, changed and they are changing very intensively and paradigms also change and they change because we acquire new knowledge, but also we change perception of old knowledge. So in your, in accordance with your experience with more than 30 years in the field, which paradigm that has changed you will extract and uh, present to us that you have witnessed and demonstrated uh, during uh, a revolving of your experience, let's say, which changed from 20 years ago to now? So, sure. Uh, I can give you an example, and it happens to be related to research that I was involved in. Um, so for a very long time, um, we have been thinking about the immune system, right, acquiring self-tolerance very early in life, and primarily through mechanisms that occur in the thymus, uh, positive and negative selection of developing T cells. But for a very long time, the belief had been these mechanisms are only um, um, actionable for molecules that are widely expressed because what we call tissue-restricted antigens. Insulin is the prototypical example of that, right? But any other molecules that are selectively expressed by a particular cell type, thyroid hormones, for example, that's another one, right? Um, those would not be made in the thymus, and therefore you cannot be tolerant to it from mechanism of thymic selection in real life. So the only way that you could not attack those cells and make those molecules is because you have peripheral tolerance mechanism that, um, uh, control that. And so that was actually changed when um, people like me and others uh, discovered that actually um, insulin and other uh, similar molecules are actually, the genes are actually transcribed in the thymus. And that is something that apparently imparts uh, tolerance as well. And then there are differences in the way those molecules are expressed, what it is the levels. Um, they could be lower or higher, which is genetically determined depending on genetic variation at those loci. There is also a mechanism of alternative splicing that create differences, basically creating whether it's a protective or, or predisposing impact on the early development of tolerance. And so that concept that actually timing tolerance is important also for those molecules uh, changed uh, when that discovery was made. And then there was the discovery of the air immune regulator that control the, the transcription factor, that control the synthesis of all of these messages in the thymus that reinforced that as well. And then it was linked to, you know, the episode syndrome. So all of those things are um, examples that things do change, right? And can change. One thing that I learned um, when I was trying to get a 
NIH grant and they keep knocking me down and 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 asking always for more and I would do everything that they asked me to do and then they asked me for some more and I said, what are you going to end, right? You need to reimburse me for all the stuff that I'm doing. You didn't give me a penny. But so <laughs> but I remember talking with a professor um, and much older than me and I was sharing with him the concern. I, I understand these guys keep torturing me and asking me and they never give me any money. And they said, why? What am I doing? He said, well, you are challenging very hard uh, rooted beliefs. Yeah. And do you think that this is a, I thought this might be some old reviewers that no, that's a young person that is killing you because we're old, we've been around and we know that we can be wrong. So why am I saying this? Because especially to young people, remember, be open-minded. Yes, thank so, you. So it's something that, you know, maybe many of us when we're young, I shouldn't say that for me anymore, um, um, can be or are open-minded, but sometimes people can be opinionated. So that I thought that was a good lesson um, and something to share with younger people. Sorry for my dog. Thank you. No, that's, that's excellent advice. Um, the whole idea of being open. I mean, there's so many different uh, disciplines of science that feed into the, the, you know, the understanding of type one diabetes that they can, you know, kind of be in different buckets or, you know, some would say silos. So um, it is very important to be open to information coming from the different types of fields that are examining type one, whether it's seek scope, GWAS, you know, physiology, neurology, you know, any kind of um, innervation studies, there's, there's so much happening. And that's why it is such an exciting field. And uh, it's got a, it's got a handhold, you know, with teplizumab, with Vertex, um, you know, I would even say in the microbiome, things, very exciting things are happening there. So there's got these handholds now, and it really needs, you know, fresh horses, new, young, um, trainees to come in with a lot of energy to, to bring them forward. And I would just say, you know, you know, in the interest of time, you know, given your enthusiasm, um, you know, uh, Dr. Pugliese, uh, for collaboration, uh, for exploration, for a cure, you know, we're really excited to see what you're going to build at City of Hope. And, um, you know, we'll continue to feature all the excellent scientists and science that are go that's going on there as, uh, as you build this sort of you know, dream team and uh, bring things uh, to fruition. So thank you so much for talking with us again. And I encourage anyone out in the audience who's a young scientist or, you know, trainee to to think about City of Hope as as a really exciting place to to be. Thank you and happy to come back in the future. We'll we'll do a part two. Sounds good. Have a great rest of your day.